Hello and welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name is Riaz. Um, I'm one of the trainee editors at the journal. And today I'm here to recall the December 2021 uh, podcast extubation after general anaesthesia. Uh, I'm joined by the lovely Vicky Mitchell, who is a consultant at UCLH, uh, who is a airway uh, anaesthetist. Uh, and I'll hand it over to you, Dr. Mitchell, to introduce yourself. Thank you, Riaz, for that very lovely introduction. My name is Vicky Mitchell. I'm a consultant anaesthetist at University College London. And um, I've had a, I was appointed as a MaxFax anaesthetist back in the day, um, and I've had a long interest in airway management. And I uh, was a contributor to the DAS extubation guidelines and then the revised DAS intubation guidelines as well. So that's my introduction. Um, thank you for agreeing to record uh, this podcast. Um, I chose this article because I thought it's such an important topic and often one that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, you mentioned very nicely at the beginning of your article that there tends to be a lot of focus on intubation, whether it's for trainees um, or whether it's for a consultant education, but extubation tends to be left out a little bit. Uh, why, why do you think this happens? Uh, yeah, I think we extubation as the Cinderella of airway management, the thing that isn't invited to the ball. And I think I guess that's because when you induce anaesthesia, you um, take control of your patient's physiology and at the end you give it back. So it's the end is a reversal of the of what you did at the beginning. So it should really be easy. You know what you're dealing with. So um, much less uncertainty. But of course, in reality, it's not like that. And we, most anaesthetists approach extubation with a bit of a trepidation, I think, because we all intuitively know that it's a high risk phase anaesthesia. But we haven't been in the habit of talking about it in a formal or structured way. And you often hear people in a coffee room saying, oh, I've got this really difficult intubation, I'm going to do X, Y and Z. But you never hear them saying, I've got a really difficult extubation, I'm going to do X, Y and Z. So the DAS guidelines really were intended to try and give a framework for thinking about extubation and teaching it more than to give a recipe for how to do it. And the numbers that you gave that came out of the DAS guidelines and the NAP4 uh, were quite surprising. I found them quite high. I didn't realise that there were that many incidences linked to extubations. Yeah, there is a high, it is a high risk phase of anaesthesia, as you'd expect, really. But most of the complications we see are are minor things, you've got hypotension, laryngospasm, desaturation, but occasionally the, the complications are very major and have adverse outcomes for the patient. And when you when you talk about other minor complications, what, what, what would you classify? The major ones um I think we get we'll go on and talk about later, but the minor ones you mentioned a few, what other what other complications would you would you routinely see, for example, in recovery or when the patients impact you? Well, when you say pack you, you mean the post anesthesia care unit. Uh, or recovery, as we call it here. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, we all recognise as anaesthetists that uh, a, an elegant extubation is when the patient just opens their eyes and smiles at you and take the tube out. Take, you take the tube out without them coughing or protesting at all. Um, but more often, there is some um, trachea irritation, so there's coughing on the tube. And that often doesn't matter, but it does raise their uh, venous pressure, which can... Um, cause tension on the suture lines of delicate surgery, raises their intraocular pressure, raises their intracranial pressure, raises their blood pressure, which can increase the risk of bleeding. Um, and if the tube is out, irritation can cause laryngospasm. Or if the patient bites on the tube because of tracheal irritation, it can cause post-obstructive pulmonary edema. So those are all things that we don't want to happen to our patients. 
And then there are all the consequences of hypoventilation due to well, a, a, a mixture of things, decreased muscle tone or incomplete reversal. Um, and then occasionally there's trauma. Someone's just rounding up to say that they've managed to dislodge a tooth taking a tube out from a patient. Um, so those are also things that we would want to guard against. And what, what are the common ones that you see, the ones that are more routinely routinely observed? Well, I could ask you the same thing, because I think we all see them, don't we? <laughs> a bit of coughing is quite common. A, a perfect extubation, there'd be no coughing, and therefore there'd be no hypertension, and there would be no, no um, tracheal stimulation. But coughing is very common. Uh, and I guess laryngospasm is the uncommon one that we're all expecting to happen sometime. Um, and, and actually... You know, there is some data available on this in the literature, but it's quite patchy. Lungospasm also, I mean, uh, sorry, extubation also hasn't been extensively investigated. There aren't that many publications about it. So it really depends on the patient population um, and the context in which anaesthesia is being performed. So if places or anaesthetists who use TIVA, for example, are much less likely to see the problems emergency and extubation problems are commoner in children than they are in adults if um, in doing a surgery or um, anesthesia where there's blood in the airway they're more common in the obese population um, problems are more common particularly in those with sleep apnea and you guys at uch you do quite big head and neck surgery so you big cancers big airways yes so head and neck surgery uh, and ent surgery is definitely a risk factor and then there are new um, areas so patients who are having laparoscopic surgery in the head down position for a long time if there's a risk of airway edema they're they're also at risk of problems so what we could talk about actually will be really interesting um pre-operative uh, preparation what steps would you take pre-operatively what would you do during the intubation to make sure that that process of extubation identified it's going to be difficult what should you do okay um, so when we talk about extubation, when we think about extubation, really it's a continuum of the whole anaesthetic plan. So we talk about making an intubation plan, don't we? Plan A, B, C, D, E. And um, it should be the same for extubation. Of course, you can't complete your extubation plan until you get to the end of the procedure because the clinical situation changes as you get there. So um, I think you have to... Um, have an outline plan for extubation and then towards the end of the case you have to review the patient situation and all the other factors before you actually take the tube out and then as with any part of anaesthesia you need to have a backup plan should extubation fail so in the original DAS guidelines they they said I think there should be a, a plan in place to measure the to manage the airway from the start to the end of anaesthesia so extubation is nicely in the end of that continuum so, um, and I think uh, identifying why extubation might be uh, challenging is part of your um, preoperative assessment. So, has the patient got a difficult airway? Because if they have, it's possible but unlikely that it will be easier at the end of the anaesthetic. So, if it was difficult before, it will be difficult at the end. You need to bear that in mind. If the surgery is going to make the airway worse by because there'll be blood in the airway or there might be airway edema. Um, then um, you, you'll have a rough idea of that as a risk before the procedure. If the patient has other um, comorbidities, so, you know, critical ischemic heart disease or something like that, then, um, you know, those are other factors that you pick up 
at the preoperative assessment. So I think you start with a rough idea of whether this is just I can take the tube out and um, probably everything will be fine, or actually I'm going to think about how I do this because um, there are if I, if because there are risks that things could go wrong. Do you think we're at that stage when um, you know if, when we're intubating someone we we have a clear plan A, plan B, plan C, I've got everything in my head, I've got all my kit, my ODP knows, everybody knows in the room what's going to happen. Do you think we're at that stage that we're also making those plans? Um, people are commonly making them for extubation. No, I think we do that. I think we are, we, we do that as anaesthetists. You know, we're pretty good at what we do, aren't we? We're very highly skilled and expert and we care about our patients, but perhaps we're just not used to, uh, it's been a hard, I find found it a hard thing to teach because there's it's not a linear chronology really and it, there hasn't been very much structure around it and in fact that's why I got involved with the DAS extubation guidelines and um, I used to teach on the airway workshops at the college with Adrian Pierce some of you'll know him he was a great sort of zen master of anesthesia really and he set up the different airway society and one day he decided he would teach this extubation workshop as part of um, that those days and I thought there's not going to be anything to say you know how are we going to talk about this for five, 45 minutes and we always had more to talk about than we managed to fit into the to the to that part of the course so um, I, I think it's it's um, helpful to structure your approach to extubation but I think a lot of us are doing that anyway. Um, so let's talk through the DAS guidelines because they're very very interesting um, and obviously they've got lots of different algorithms that are placed out there so the first bit um I guess the first thing that struck out to me was all about plan 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 have a plan have a clear strategy in your mind um do you mind just talking through what's the process you went because you were clearly on the committee that wrote these like on, that wrote these guidelines what did you guys go through as a team when putting this together <laughs> they took about four years to write these guidelines and the difficulty was organizing it in a way that would make sense and that would would be helpful would be a helpful framework it's like a skeleton really or a scaffolding to hang your approach to extubation on so and um we weren't quite sure you know we felt that we we couldn't write a didactic recipe because as with most uh areas of anesthesia it's um experiential so you get very good at a technique when you uh practice it lots of times and i think it's the same with extubation it's like a bit like baking, isn't it? You know, if I had a fruitcake recipe and I gave you my recipe and you gave me yours, our fruitcakes would be slightly different than if we'd made them ourselves. So it's the little it's the little refinements you make in response to the clinical situation that uh, make you skilled at what you do. And so uh, you can't really tell people, oh, you must extubate like this because um, that's because there are lots of different approaches. So. It doesn't really matter how you do it as long as it works well for you. And actually, the thing that works well for you is likely to be the best approach. So but lots of people, lots of the reviewers said oh, it would be really helpful to have um, some basic principles, which is why we wrote the recipe for low risk, ex low risk extubation in the awake patient. Um, so uh, we so the framework is plan. So that's what we've already talked about. You make a plan for extubation as part of your airway management plan when you do the preoperative assessment and then um, prepare for extubation. So you um, uh, assess the patient to see have they have they got any airway likely airway problems? Did they have a different airway at the beginning? Have they got an air, airway that's been compromised by blood or something in the airway now or edema? And then uh, are they physiologically stable? You know, if they're septic. 
And with a raging tachycardia, you're not going to take the tube out. If they're really cold or really hot, you're probably not going to take the tube out. Um, and then um, optimize everything that you possibly can. So suction the airway if necessary, upper and lower airway, um, reverse the neuromuscular blockade, correct any electrolyte imbalances, make sure their temperature is okay before you actually take the tube out. And then another important thing, which is really easily overlooked, is the post-extubation and emergence care, which, um, you know, we sort of feel, oh, we've, you, we, we've finished the anaesthetic when we take the tube out. Of course, we know that we haven't. And how you transfer the patient to recovery, the instructions you provide for the um, recovery nurse or the intensive care if the patient is going there are all really important aspects of good anaesthetic care. The differentiating partway path on that algorithm is the identifying of the low risk and at risk. And I wonder, I wonder whether your assessment and my assessment could vary. What may be low risk for you may be high risk for me. And I guess it depends on the person stratifying that patient at that given point, whether they're going to deem them high risk or low risk. And I guess these guidelines allow that flexibility uh yeah that's a really good point so the risk stratification um you know i think equally that doesn't just exist at one point in time so you may think they're early at the at the preoperative that you may think that they it's going to be an easy extubation they're low risk at the preoperative assessment but something might happen during the case that means that that's no longer um true and um of course Situational factors like the skill set of the staff involved, and that's the anaesthetist, but it's all the other staff as well, are really important in that risk assessment. So if you're an experienced anaesthetist uh, who thinks they could cope with laryngospasm, you, it's very different if you're just a, a novice anaesthetist who would might find it a very stressful thing to do. You've also talked about um, uh, the awake and the uh, deep extubation. There's obviously lots of discussions. Lots of people are very either in one camp or another camp. What's what's your view on it? Well, that's a very good question. No absolute answer. <laughs> so I think um, deep extubation can work well. We know that your the um, airway stimulation and the cardiovascular stimulation you, it's it's much less likely to occur if you take the tube out deep, but the um, then but then there's a risk of particularly airway obstruction in the post-operative period. So if you're not with the patient and your recovery nurse doesn't recognise obstruction, um, then it can lead to hypoxia and that can lead to disaster. So um, it's very so that's why we say it's a technique. It's an expert technique. You need to um, have practised it and refined it. You need to be confident that. Um, when you leave your patient in recovery, they've, they've either woken up and their airway reflexes are restored or you can, you're immediately available to um, intervene if that's necessary. So and, I'm, and there are some anaesthetists who would I, I think in general, we would hesitate to extubate someone who we knew would be very difficult to intubate deep. But um, there are some people who might. Uh, do that in some circumstances. And, and I'm thinking of my uh, ENT colleagues um, here, at the, what was the Royal National Throat, Nose and Ear. But actually, they don't, they, they don't extubate deep. They put a laryngeal, they take the tube out and they put a laryngeal mask in. And they do that because um, the, they've avoided the effects of the stimulation of the tube, which 
and coughing on a tube if the airway is very fragile is a disadvantage but they've also avoided the complication of inadvertent airway obstruction until the patient has woken up but they are experts in their field and they feel able to um, cope with the consequences and to safely manage any problems that might arise so that wouldn't that would be a foolish thing to do in less experienced hands. And I, I think it depends where, I mean, the um, environment is very important too. So if, you, if you've uh, done an awake extubation for a patient in an MRI scanner and you're on your own in the, in the sub-basement, um, then you might not want to extubate them. You might want to take them back to an operating theatre or recovery where help and equipment are more readily available. And if it's a Friday night bank holiday weekend and you've done a really big head and neck case where you where you know there's going to be airway edema or you know the airway was difficult already you might make a different decision about taking the tube out at the end of the case than if it was the middle of the day and there were lots of people around i guess that brings you know that brings a lot of focus on human factors and environmental situations other than just the pure clinical skills yeah and i think i mean in in the airline industry they talk about the closed cockpit so this idea that when you the cognitive load of takeoff and landing are the greatest of the entire flight, same for us, really. And for uh, intubation, we have quite a controlled environment. We have our equipment ready. We uh, we're either in an anaesthetic room or a theatre where we you know, make everyone pay due respect to the patient and um, we have all the people we need. And at the end of the operation, everyone else thinks they finished. So, you know, it's noisy, it's chaotic. There are instruments being moved around. Everyone's, you know, talking about what they're going to do later. Very often um, there's time pressure to do the next patient. And the patient often isn't positioned as well as they were at the start of the case. The equipment isn't there. And you may not have the same help that you had at the start of the case. And those are all things that we can control to some extent. But um, we have to make much more effort to control them than we do at induction of anaesthesia. Um, over my years of since I've been doing anaesthetics, I've obviously seen quite a few different techniques. And one of the things I saw about two, three years ago was um, topicalization of the airway just before you extubate them. And I thought it was quite interesting. I can't remember where I saw it. And you also mentioned it in your article. Um, is this something that is becoming routine practice where you topicalize the airway so you don't get those reflexes when you extubate your patient? Uh, I don't know if it, it is routine practice for some people and it is routine practice for some institutions I think whether or not it's becoming uh, more routine in more places I'm not sure um, and having looked at the evidence such as it is um, for short cases definitely um, Topicalization at the start of a procedure can reduce coughing uh, at the end of the case because it reduces the tube, the stimulation of the tube. So the evidence isn't quite so as clear for longer cases, and uh, and then other people have done things like put local anaesthetic into the cuff because it diffuses through the cuff during the procedure. There's a bit of evidence that might work, or squirted it down the tube at the end of the case. Uh, or given it lidocaine intravenously, which does has been shown to have some benefit, although that's um, a centrally mediated effect. So there are lots of different ways to do this, but I just think it's it's that thing about refining your technique, practicing something until you're really good at it. And 
whatever the, the, the sequence of steps are, probably you'll make them work really well if you do them often enough. And same with Remy fentanyl. Um, I didn't I didn't realise that you could actually put on some Remy fentanyl just to ease out your extubation. And most of the time I've seen it when you've had Remy fentanyl as a part of the anaesthetic and therefore you continue it. I think mostly you would only use that if you were really worried. And what you wanted was a tube tolerant patient who was completely awake. And that is the advantage of Remy. You get it right. They don't cough. Of course, you've got to make sure that they're breathing before you take the tube out. It's easy to get caught with um, the patient being apparently awake but not breathing. <laughs> so you need to get that bit right. But yeah, they don't. They, you can get them so they don't cough in the tube. So if you were to if you were to give your words of wisdom to talk me through like an ideal extubation. So I'm. <laughs> Because I'm probably, I'm probably going to rotate through UCH at some stage, and we're probably going to be on a list at some stage. So, what would you, what would you want to see if you walked in and this was like the perfect extubation that you've just watched? That would make you really happy. Um, so, I think uh, you'd have uh, pre-oxygenated the patient, but not for too long. And um, if they needed any, if there was any risk of any debris in the airway, so blood or secretions, you'd have um, sucked those out under direct, direct vision using a laryngoscope before the patient woke up. And um, the patient would be sitting up and uh, breathing spontaneously. And they'd have their eyes open and smile at you. And you'd say, open, them, open your mouth and, you'd, and then you'd take the tube out and they wouldn't cough at all. And all their, their heart rate and their blood pressure and their saturation wouldn't change. And then they breathe beautifully after you took the tube out as, and as you took them to recovery, saying, thank you, doctor. God, you've sent you set a pretty high <laughs> Isn't that what we all want? <laughs> Dream situation. Um, but often it's like that, actually. It's often like that. <laughs> if you use Teva. No, I say, I say it's often like that, but I've had... I, I don't regard myself as an expert in extubation because mine often aren't like that. <laughs> I think if you use propofol Remy, um, there's no doubt that extubation is just much easier to get right. Uh, you, you mentioned about being head up. So a lot of, again, there's this discussion about being head down, lateral, head up. Um, I've traditionally always been taught um, head up. I don't think I've ever extubated, uh, unless it's a child and you put them in a lateral position. I don't think I've ever extubated an adult in a lateral position. I was thinking before when I was when I was reading this article. Um, is this something that you would you would do or people do? Yeah, that's a historical thing. And I think partly it's because we used to use um, longer acting agents like thiopentone and halothane. So patient, patients were woke up, woke up really slowly. Um, and the um, reasoning behind that was that if they regurgitated, then the regurgitant would come out and drain onto the pillow whereas if you sit them up and they regurgitate they might aspirate and the regurgitant would go down the right main bronchus but um, I think with the use of shorter acting agents um, things have changed and most people now extubate with their patients um, in the head up position you've got much better control of the airway you've got much better visualization of the um, airway and the chest for chest movements and signs of obstruction and the respiratory mechanics are more favourable. Bite block or no bite block? Uh, I always put a bite block in if I'm using a superglottic airway, first generation superglottic airway that doesn't have an integral bite block and I always put a bite block if, in, if I'm using an oral tube because post-obstructive pulmonary edema is just embarrassing really and it's avoidable. <laughs>
Brilliant. Cool. Well, thank you very much. That was super useful. I've really, I've really enjoyed that. Yes, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this interview and it's been great to put extubation in the spotlight.